0: Chapter Eleven of *The Jewel of Seven Stars*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. *The Jewel of Seven Stars* by Bram Stoker. Chapter Eleven, A Queen's Tomb. Mister Trelawney's hope was at least as great as my own. He is not so volatile a man as I am, prone to ups and downs of hope and despair. But he has a fixed purpose which crystallizes hope into belief. At times I had feared that there might have been two such stones, or that the adventures of Van Hine were travellers' fictions, based on some ordinary acquisition of the Curio in Alexandria or Cairo, or London or Amsterdam. But Mr Trelawney never faltered in his belief. We had many things to distract our minds from belief or disbelief. This was soon after Arabi Pasha, and Egypt was no safe place for travelers, especially if they were English. But Mr. Trelawney is a fearless man, and I almost come to think at times that I am not a coward myself. We got together a band of Arabs whom one or other of us had known in former trips to the desert, and whom we could trust. That is, we did not distrust them as much as others. We were numerous enough to protect ourselves from chance marauding bands, and we took with us large impedimenta. We had secured the consent and passive cooperation of the officials still friendly to Britain. In the acquiring of which consent, I need hardly say that Mister Trelawney's riches were of chief importance. We found our way in dahabias to Aswan whence, having got some Arabs from the Sheikh, and having given our usual bakshish, we set out on our journey through the desert. Well, after much wandering and trying every winding in the interminable jumble of hills, we came at last at nightfall on just such a valley as Van Hine had described. A valley with high, steep cliffs, narrowing in the center and widening out to the eastern and western ends at daylight we were opposite the cliff and could easily note the opening high up in the rock and the hieroglyphic figures which were evidently intended originally to conceal it but the signs which had baffled van heine and those of his time and later were no secrets to us the host of scholars who have given their brains and their lives to this work had wrested open the mysterious prison-house of egyptian language On the hewn face of the rocky cliff, we, who had learned the secrets, could read what the Theban priesthood had had there inscribed nearly fifty centuries before. For that the external inscription was the work of the priesthood, and a hostile priesthood at that, there could be no living doubt. The inscription on the rock, written in hieroglyphic, ran thus. Hither the gods come not at any summons. The Nameless One has insulted them, and is forever alone. Go not nigh, lest their vengeance wither you away." The warning must have been a terribly potent one at the time it was written, and for thousands of years afterwards, even when the language in which it was given had become a dead mystery to the people of the land the tradition of such a terror lasts longer than its cause even in the symbols used there was an added significance of alliteration forever is given in the hieroglyphics as millions of years this symbol was repeated nine times in three groups of three and after each group a symbol of the upper world the underworld and the sky so that for this lonely one there could be through the vengeance of all the gods resurrection in neither the world of sunlight in the world of the dead or for the soul in the region of the gods neither mr trelawny nor i dared to tell any of our people what the writing meant for though they did not believe in the religion whence the curse came or in the gods whose vengeance was threatened yet they were so superstitious that they would probably had they known of it have thrown up the whole task and run away. Their ignorance, however, and our discretion, preserved us. We made an encampment close at hand, but behind a jutting rock a little further along the valley, so that they might not have the inscription always before them. For even that traditional name of the place, the Valley of the Sorcerer, had a fear for them, and for us through them. With the timber which we had brought, we made a ladder up the face of the rock. We hung a pulley on a beam fixed to project from the top of the cliff. We found the great slab of rock, which formed the door, placed clumsily in its place and secured by a few stones. Its own weight kept it in safe position. In order to enter, we had to push it in, and we passed over it. We found the great coil of chain which Van Hine had described fastened into the rock. There were, however, abundant evidences amid the wreckage of the great stone door, which had revolved on iron hinges at top and bottom, that ample provision had been originally made for closing and fastening it from within. Mr. Trelawney and I went alone into the tomb. We had brought plenty of lights with us, and we fixed them as we went along. We wished to get a complete survey at first, and then make examination of all in detail. As we went on, we were filled with ever-increasing wonder and delight. The tomb was one of the most magnificent and beautiful which either of us had ever seen. From the elaborate nature of the sculpture and painting, and the perfection of the workmanship, It was evident that the tomb was prepared during the lifetime of her for whose resting place it was intended. The drawing of the hieroglyphic pictures was fine, and the coloring superb, and in that high cavern, far away from even the damp of the Nile flood, all was as fresh as when the artists had laid down their palettes. There was one thing which we could not avoid seeing that, although the cutting on the outside rock was the work of the priesthood, the smoothing of the cliff face was probably a part of the tomb-builder's original design. The symbolism of the painting and cutting within all gave the same idea. The outer cavern, partly natural and partly hewn, was regarded architecturally as only an antechamber. At the end of it, so that it would face the east, was a pillared portico, hewn out of the solid rock. The pillars were massive and were seven-sided, a thing which we had not come across in any other tomb. Sculptured on the architrave was the Boat of the Moon, containing Hathor, cow-headed and bearing the disk and plumes, and the dog-headed Hoppy, the god of the north. It was steered by Harpocrates towards the north, represented by the pole star surrounded by draco and ursa major in the latter the stars that form what we call the plough were cut larger than any of the other stars and were filled with gold so that in the light of torches they seemed to flame with a special significance passing within the portico we found two of the architectural features of a rock tomb the chamber or chapel and the pit all complete as van Hine had noticed though in his day the names given to these parts by the egyptians of old were unknown the stele or record which had its place low down on the western wall was so remarkable that we examined it minutely even before going on our way to find the mummy which was the object of our search this stele was a great slab of lapis lazuli cut all over with hieroglyphic figures of small size and of much beauty. The cutting was filled in with some cement of exceeding fineness, and of the color of pure vermilion. The inscription began, Terra, Queen of the Egypts, Daughter of Antef, Monarch of the North and the South, Daughter of the Sun, Queen of the Diadems. It then set out, in full record, the history of her life and reign. The signs of sovereignty were given with a truly feminine profusion of adornment. The united crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt were, in especial, cut with exquisite precision. It was new to us both to find the Hayat and the desher, the white and the red crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt, on the stele of a queen for it was a rule without exception in the records that in ancient egypt either crown was worn only by a king though they are to be found on goddesses later on we found an explanation of which i shall say more presently such an inscription was in itself a matter so startling as to arrest attention from anyone anywhere at any time but you can have no conception of the effect which it had upon us though our eyes were not the first which had seen it they were the first which could see it with understanding since first the slab of rock was fixed in the cliff opening nearly five thousand years before to us was given to read this message from the dead this message of one who had warred against the gods of old and claimed to have controlled them at a time when the hierarchy professed to be the only means of exciting their fears or gaining their good will the walls of the upper chamber of the pit and the sarcophagus chamber were profusely inscribed all the inscriptions except that on the stele being colored with bluish-green pigment the effect when seen sideways as the eye caught the green facets was that of an old, discolored Indian turquoise. We descended the pit by the aid of the tackle we had brought with us. Trelawney went first. It was a deep pit, more than seventy feet, but it had never been filled up. The passage at the bottom sloped up to the sarcophagus chamber and was longer than is usually found. It had not been walled up. Within we found a great sarcophagus of yellow stone. But that I need not describe. You have seen it in Mr. Trelawney's chamber. The cover of it lay on the ground. It had not been cemented and was just as Van Hine had described it. Needless to say, we were excited as we looked within. There must, however, be one sense of disappointment i could not help feeling how different must have been the sight which met the dutch traveler's eyes when he looked within and found that white hand lying lifelike above the shrouding mummy cloths it is true that a part of the arm was there white and ivory-like but there was a thrill to us which came not to van Hine. the end of the wrist was covered with dried blood It was as though the body had bled after death. The jagged ends of the broken wrist were rough with the clotted blood. Through this the white bone, sticking out, looked like a matrix of opal. The blood had streamed down and stained the brown wrappings as with rust. Here, then, was full confirmation of the narrative. With such evidence of the narrator's truth before us, we could not doubt the other matters which he had told, such as the blood in the mummy hand or marks of the seven fingers on the throat of the strangled sheikh. I shall not trouble you with details of all we saw or how we learned all we knew. Part of it was from knowledge common to scholars, part we read on the stele in the tomb and in the sculptures and hieroglyphic paintings on the walls queen terra was of the eleventh or theban dynasty of egyptian kings which held sway between the twenty ninth and twenty fifth centuries before christ she succeeded as the only child of her father antef she must have been a girl of extraordinary character as well as ability for she was but a young girl when her father died Her youth and sex encouraged the ambitious priesthood which had then achieved immense power. By their wealth and numbers and learning they dominated all Egypt, more especially the upper portion. They were then secretly ready to make an effort for the achievement of their bold and long-considered design, that of transferring the governing power from a kingship to a hierarchy. But King Antef had suspected some such movement, and had taken the precaution of securing to his daughter the allegiance of the army. He had also had her taught statecraft, and had even made her learned in the lore of the very priests themselves. He had used those of one cult against the other, each being hopeful of some present gain on its own part by the influence of the king or of some ultimate gain from its own influence over his daughter. Thus, the princess had been brought up amongst scribes, and was herself no mean artist. Many of these things were told on the walls, in pictures, or in hieroglyphic writing of great beauty, and we came to the conclusion that not a few of them had been done by the princess herself. It was not without cause that she was inscribed in the stele as protector of the arts. But the king had gone to further lengths, and had had his daughter taught magic, by which she had power over sleep and will. This was real magic, black magic, not the magic of the temples, which, I may explain, was of the harmless or white order, and was intended to impress rather than to affect. She had been an apt pupil, and had gone further than her teachers. Her power and her resources had given her great opportunities, of which she had availed herself to the full. She had won secrets from nature in strange ways, and had even gone to the length of going down into the tomb herself, having been swathed and coffined and left as dead for a whole month. The priests had tried to make out that the real Princess Terra had died in the experiment and that another girl had been substituted, but she had conclusively proved their error. All this was told in pictures of great merit. It was probably in her time that the impulse was given in the restoring the artistic greatness of the fourth dynasty which had found its perfection in the days of Khufu. In the chamber of the sarcophagus were pictures and writings to show that she had achieved victory over sleep. Indeed, there was everywhere a symbolism, wonderful even in a land and an age of symbolism. Prominence was given to the fact that she, though a queen, claimed all the privileges of kingship and masculinity. In one place she was pictured in man's dress and wearing the white and red crowns. In the following picture, she was in female dress, but still wearing the crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt, while the discarded male raiment lay at her feet. In every picture where hope or aim of resurrection was expressed, there was the added symbol of the North, and in many places, always in representations of important events, past, present, or future, was a grouping of the stars of the plough. She evidently regarded this constellation as in some way peculiarly associated with herself. Perhaps the most remarkable statement in the records, both on the stele and in the mural writings, was that Queen Terra had power to compel the gods. This, by the way, was not an isolated belief in Egyptian history but was different in its cause she had engraved on a ruby carved like a scarab and having seven stars of seven points master words to compel all the gods both of the upper and the underworlds in the statement it was plainly set forth that the hatred of the priests was she knew stored up for her and that they would after her death try to suppress her name This was a terrible revenge, I may tell you, in Egyptian mythology, for without a name no one can after death be introduced to the gods or have prayers said for him. Therefore she had intended her resurrection to be after a long time and in a more northern land under the constellation whose seven stars had ruled her birth. To this end her hand was to be in the air unwrap and in it the jewel of seven stars so that wherever there was air she might move even as her ka could move this after thinking it over mr Trelawney and i agreed meant that her body could become astral at command and so move particle by particle and become whole again when and where required Then there was a piece of writing in which allusion was made to a chest or casket, in which were contained all the gods and will and sleep, the two latter being personified by symbols. The box was mentioned as with seven sides. It was not much of a surprise to us when, underneath the feet of the mummy, we found the seven-sided casket, which you have also seen in Mr. Trelawney's room. On the underneath part of the wrapping, linen of the left foot was painted, in the same vermilion color as that used in the stele, the hieroglyphic symbol for much water, and underneath the right foot, the symbol of the earth. We made out the symbolism to be that her body, immortal and transferable at will, ruled both the land and the water, air and fire, the latter being exemplified by the light of the jewel stone and further by the flint and iron which lay outside the mummy wrappings. As we lifted the casket from the sarcophagus, we noticed on its sides the strange protuberances which you have already seen, but we were unable at the time to account for them. There were a few amulets in the sarcophagus, but none of any special worth or significance. We took it that if there were such, they were within the wrappings or, more probably, in the strange casket underneath the mummy's feet. This, however, we could not open. There were signs of there being a cover, certainly the upper portion and the lower were each in one piece. The fine line, a little way from the top, appeared to be where the cover was fixed, but it was made with such exquisite fineness and finish that the joining could hardly be seen. Certainly the top could not be moved. We took it that it was in some way fastened from within. I tell you all this in order that you may understand things with which you may be in contact later. You must suspend your judgment entirely. Such strange things have happened regarding this mummy and all around it that there is a necessity for a new belief somewhere." It is absolutely impossible to reconcile certain things which have happened with the ordinary currents of life or knowledge. We stayed around the valley of the sorcerer till we had copied roughly all the drawings and writings on the walls, ceilings, and floor. We took with us the stele of lapis lazuli, whose graven record was colored with vermilion pigment. We took the sarcophagus and the mummy, the stone chest with the alabaster jars the tables of bloodstone and alabaster and onyx and carnelian and the ivory pillow whose arch rested on buckles round each of which was twisted an ureus wrought in gold we took all the articles which lay in the chapel and the mummy pit the wooden boats with crews and the ushaptui figures and their symbolic amulets When coming away, we took down the ladders and, at a distance, buried them in the sand under a cliff, which we noted so that, if necessary, we might find it again. Then, with our heavy baggage, we set out on our laborious journey back to the Nile. It was no easy task, I tell you, to bring the case with that great sarcophagus over the desert. We had a rough cart and sufficient men to draw it, but the progress seemed terribly slow, for we were anxious to get our treasures into a place of safety. The night was an anxious time with us, for we feared attack from some marauding band. But more still, we feared some of those with us. They were, after all, but predatory, unscrupulous men, and we had with us a considerable bulk of precious things. They, or at least the dangerous ones amongst them, did not know why it was so precious. They took it for granted that it was material treasure of some kind that we carried. We had taken the mummy from the sarcophagus and packed it for safety of travel in a separate case. During the first night two attempts were made to steal things from the cart, and two men were found dead in the morning. On the second night, there came on a violent storm, one of those terrible simooms of the desert which make one feel his helplessness. We were overwhelmed with drifting sand. Some of our Bedouins had fled before the storm, hoping to find shelter. The rest of us, wrapped in our burnous, endured with what patience we could. In the morning, when the storm had passed, we recovered from under the piles of sand what we could of our impedimenta. We found the case in which the mummy had been packed all broken, but the mummy itself could nowhere be found. We searched everywhere around and dug up the sand which had piled around us, but in vain. We did not know what to do, for Trelawney had his heart set on taking home that mummy, we waited a whole day in hopes that the bedouins who had fled would return we had a blind hope that they might have in some way removed the mummy from the cart and would restore it that night just before dawn mr trelawny woke me up and whispered in my ear we must go back to the tomb in the valley of the sorcerer show no hesitation in the morning when i give the orders If you ask any questions as to where we are going, it will create suspicion and will defeat our purpose. All right, I answered, but why shall we go there? His answer seemed to thrill through me as though it had struck some chord ready-tuned within. We shall find the mummy there. I am sure of it. Then, anticipating doubt or argument, he added, wait and you shall see and he sank back into his blanket again. The Arabs were surprised when we retraced our steps, and some of them were not satisfied. There was a good deal of friction, and there were several desertions, so that it was with a diminished following that we took our way eastward again. At first the Sheikh did not manifest any curiosity as to our definite destination, but when it became apparent that we were again making for the Valley of the Sorcerer, he too showed concern. This grew as we drew near, till finally at the entrance of the valley, he halted and refused to go further. He said he would await our return if we chose to go on alone. That he would wait three days, but if by that time we had not returned, he would leave. No offer of money would tempt him to depart from this resolution. The only concession he would make was that he would find the ladders and bring them near the cliff. This he did, and then, with the rest of the troop, he went back to wait at the entrance of the valley. Mr. Trelawney and I took ropes and torches and again ascended to the tomb. It was evident that someone had been there in our absence— for the stone slab which protected the entrance to the tomb was lying flat inside, and a rope was dangling from the cliff summit. Within there was another rope hanging into the shaft of the mummy pit. We looked at each other, but neither said a word. We fixed our own rope, and, as arranged, Trelawney descended first, I following at once. It was not till we stood together at the foot of the shaft that the thought flashed across me that we might be in some sort of a trap, that someone might descend the rope from the cliff, and by cutting the rope by which we had lowered ourselves into the pit, bury us there alive. The thought was horrifying, but it was too late to do anything. I remained silent we both had torches so that there was ample light as we passed through the passage and entered the chamber where the sarcophagus had stood the first thing noticeable was the emptiness of the place despite all its magnificent adornment the tomb was made a desolation by the absence of the great sarcophagus to hold which it was hewn in the rock of the chest with the alabaster jars OF THE TABLES WHICH HAD HELD THE IMPLEMENTS AND FOOD FOR THE USE OF THE DEAD AND THE USHAPTU FIGURES. IT WAS MADE MORE INFINITELY DESOLATE STILL BY THE SHROUDED FIGURE OF THE MUMMY OF QUEEN TERRA WHICH LAY ON THE FLOOR WHERE THE GREAT SARCOPHAGUS HAD STOOD. BESIDE IT LAY, IN THE STRANGE CONTORTED ATTITUDES OF VIOLENT DEATH, THREE OF THE ARABS WHO HAD DESERTED FROM OUR PARTY their faces were black and their hands and necks were smeared with blood which had burst from mouth and nose and eyes on the throat of each were the marks now blackening of a hand of seven fingers trelawny and i drew close and clutched each other in awe and fear as we looked for most wonderful of all across the breast of the mummied queen lay a hand of seven fingers ivory white the wrist only showing a scar like a jagged red line from which seemed to depend drops of blood chapter eleven recording by roger